Hi, and welcome to Control, the podcast where we speak to incredibly inspiring women in the music industry. I'm Chelsea Wilson, your host, and in this episode, I'm speaking to Chrissy Vincent. Across multiple continents and three decades, Chrissy has built an impressive portfolio in the music industry. She's worked for companies such as MTV, Virgin Records, Harbour Agency and Triple M and worked with artists such as Lenny Kravitz and the Sex Pistols. She established her own publicity firm, working for festivals such as Falls, has served as a board director for organisations including Music Victoria and The Push and recently moved into education, heading up the entertainment management faculty at Collarts in Melbourne. In 2018, Chrissy completed her master's degree, writing a thought-provoking thesis that revealed Commercial Radio Australia's breach of the Australian content quotas, leading to Chrissy speaking at a parliamentary inquiry into the Australian music industry. I've put a link to Chrissy's paper and the inquiry in the show notes. In this conversation, Chrissy and I dived into her research, talking about radio quotas, advocacy and more. I also asked Chrissy about her time working in LA, and she reveals her career highlights, what it was like meeting David Bowie, and what sparked her return to Melbourne. This is Chrissy Vincent in Control. Chrissy Vincent, I've been so looking forward to having a conversation with you. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me. How have you been going through this physical lockdown experience in Victoria? Hi, Chelsea. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm really excited to be talking to you too. Um, Lockdown in Victoria has been quite tough. Uh, I have been working full on uh, with classes for Collarts since March and not looking at uh, going on campus Till next year. So it's been pretty tough, actually. I'm getting tired of looking at myself on Zoom uh, every day. So um, I'm looking forward to kind of getting out of the house, having a holiday uh, over Christmas. And um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm so proud of Victorians though, because we've done it. We've done it, but it has been really tough. Yeah. Yeah, it has been really tough. Well, yeah. hopefully we'll be back out at gigs before we know it. God, yeah. I hope so. I'm really excited to talk to you about your career in the music industry where you have spanned so many different areas of the industry. But firstly, I'd really love to discuss your research work in the commercial radio space and in particular, your case study on local minimum content requirements for commercial radio, which revealed that commercial radio are not complying with mandatory Australian content quotas and only playing a small percentage of local artists. So your research examined the content played on a range of stations over a set time period uh, for people who haven't read it and explained that the former regulatory body, AMCOM, that monitored the content quota is no longer operational, which leaves the Australian Communication and Media Authority as the supervisor of the code. Can you talk us through what's going on there? Why was AMCOM disbanded? That's a really good question, Chelsea, and I actually don't know why it was um, disbanded. They, I think there was a lot of pressure from Commercial Radio Australia, CRA, uh, who were um, really not wanting to go through the process of uh, reporting to any particular body. And because they were, it was self-regulatory, uh, they didn't, they felt like they didn't need to, re- to, to d- report to anyone. So I think there was a lot of pressure from them, but there was, 
AMCOM was made up of people from APRA, ARIA, lots of diff- a lot of those organisations, so and and record labels, etc. So there were a lot of people on this AP, uh, AMCOM board. And then in 2016, they disbanded, but there's no real reason. There's no real, I don't know what the reason was exactly. I know that CRA was pushing to um, uh, not have to report. So with them disbanding, they then didn't have to report. So they're not really reporting to anyone at the moment. Mm. And so what's the Australian Communication and Media Authority response been like to your report? Did you hear anything from them? Have they read it? Uh, I don't know if they read it, but but when I presented it to the um, when I presented my my research and I did a submission to the parliamentary inquiry into the Australian music business, uh, the panel of the inquiry were really really interested in it, and I'm I'm assuming that they uh, gave the report to the ACMA, but. I've never heard anything back from them. Now, in um, the federal government's um, key findings and from their uh, from their inquiry, you know, they say that uh, there should be a, a body that's overseeing it and an independent body. Um, so they kind of push for it, but I don't know what the response has been from the ACMA at all, to be honest. And it's kind of really hard when you're an independent and you don't have any real body that's helping you get those answers from parliamentary bodies. Now, I've tried to contact Paul Fletcher and it took me about a month to get a response from Paul Fletcher, the Communications and the Arts Minister, and who's also Roads and Rail, (laughs) which makes a lot of sense. What a Um, combo. What a combo. Um, But, yeah, uh, it's really difficult when you're, you don't, you're not, you don't have a, a, body behind you like an app or an mm. aria or anything like that you you're just trying to get these answers they tend to just treat you like you're a member of the public and we'll get to you and and especially with Paul Fletcher if you're not a constituent of his um electorate they they he, it took him over a month to respond to questions so if you are in his electorate they will get back to you a lot quicker <laughs> so, right yeah <laughs> So throughout the process of doing this research piece, what was the most surprising discovery or did it really confirm for you things that you already knew? Um, I think we all already knew that commercial radio wasn't doing what they should be doing with regard to supporting Australian content. But what was surprising for me was that some of the the bodies that you would have assumed uh, were there to support Australian content and Australian artists weren't as helpful as they should have been. I feel so that was quite surprising for me. Do I? Do you want me to go into who? <laughs> <laughs> That's all right. <laughs> um, what do you think needs to change culturally for Australian radio to want to support Australian artists? I mean, I think they think that they are supporting Australian artists. At least that's what they say. Yeah, they do say that. And, you know, the funny thing is they're only probably supporting a pro- a small handful of about five or six artists and that's it, you know. And there's, I think there's quite a few things that need to change. Culturally, that's a really, really good question. 
Um, and we t- I talk about it a lot in class. We're doing cultural policy at the moment and we talk about what is it, what would you say was Australian culture and we talk about music and stuff. And um, But, you know, for, I think that what needs to change is that the commercial radio need to go back to that championing of artists and really kind of they don't seem to really love music. It's It seems to be a secondary uh, thing for most commercial radio stations and it's it's that gap between the ads really you know music so it's um they need to go back to championing Australian artists so that uh they feel that kind of look look at us we've we've broken this artist and look at look at this how we've done that and I used to work at Triple M back in like 89 90 and we that was what it was like and and the i know that the uh that the announcers w- went to gigs and really loved music there were a lot of um comedians richard stubbs was on triple m the d generation so i was there at that time where there was a lot of comedians on air but they loved music and they went to gigs you know and we championed artists back then and i think that's what they need to get back to doing they also australian culture maybe now with with everything that's been going on with regard to COVID, maybe now is when we really start looking at all of the amazing artists that we do have instead of looking at, you know, international acts always as uh, they're better. Um, you know, we need to look at the Australian acts and half the people that I speak to, as in my students, they don't even realise that a lot of Australian acts are Australian. Do you know what I mean? And you go, yeah, latch on to that. Uh, have that pride in our music. That's that's what I think that we need to get back. And it's also, Chelsea, that whole tall poppy thing as well. Um, you know, as soon as an act does really well, an Australian act, we tend to cut them down. But that's an Australian cultural thing that's been with us for, you know, decades for a hundred years it's, I think it came in from World War one or something so it's uh, that whole thing of way the way Australians think needs to change a little bit but it's a really good question yes definitely I think there's a lot of <laughs> a lot of change that can happen there just feels to be quite a disconnect between commercial radio and the music industry of Australia when such a core part of their business is playing music it's a really interesting and strange disconnect. I wanted to ask you about the commercial radio licensing fees because I understand that there is a 1% cap for commercial radio in terms of what they pay for royalties. So 1% of their profit is what is going to pay the songwriters and the copyright owners of the works that they play on air. However, I was just thinking about that and looking at other license rates and in the live performance sector, so for festivals and gigs, the APRA rate is around 2%. Uh. So am I right that live music users are paying double the amount in terms of percentage royalties than commercial radio? Why isn't? Why do you think this isn't more of a dominant conversation? Why aren't the festival promoters getting up in arms about paying double the amount in percentage than commercial radio? 
I think because they don't really know and it's only when you start digging down deeper that you actually find that out. You know, uh, it was only when I started doing all of the research that I went, wow, really? And But you've also got to remember that, that there's the, the major, the three major labels have a real uh, say in this. You know, your, your comment before about commercial radio not having that disconnect between the Australian music industry, there's a dis- disconnect between the rest of us, but with the commercial radio, there's still very, very much a connection. And it's only the three major labels that commercial radio has a, has a connection with. And I think that has a lot to do with the percentage as well. I think I don't. I don't really know on that case, but you would think that more people would know about it, and more people would, and especially like you said, the festival side of things would be up in arms about that, paying double what commercial radio, who are making a lot more money, would be paying. And that's another question for APRA. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're right in terms of the argument that CRA are using around the 1% cap is claimed to be this fight against the perceived oligopoly, which is my new favourite word that I discovered Mm. through your research linking me to other (laughs) things. So the oligopoly being almost a monopoly. So as you mentioned, Mm. the three major labels that control around 80% of all recorded content. Mm. And so the fight that CRA are claiming is a one, you know, a 1% cap would be fair against this oligopoly. However, the contradiction seems to be that commercial radio in Australia is 80% of stations are only owned by about 30 owners. So they Mm. as well are an oligopoly. Oh yeah. (laughs) Hell yeah. Um, Southern Cross Stereo, DNG, which is the Nova, Nova ones, but there's three really big ones, like your News Corp and your Fairfax, same, same thing but in Radioland, and they own a lot of the radio stations around the country. And then there's a, a couple that are a couple of regional um, groups but yeah, you're right. They there is exactly that in in commercial radio, and now what they've started doing is just doing this whole um, networking where they're just doing shows. They're not even doing specific shows in Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane. They're just networking and doing pushing it all out. So you don't even have a, a breakfast team in in Melbourne, for instance, or a drive team in Brisbane. You've all got one per, one team doing the whole country. How does that work? You know, so that's that. That's what those big uh, radio networks are, are doing, and the international syndicated programs as well. That's right. You know, mm-hmm. Ryan Seacrest or whoever you know they're broadcasting over here. It just kind of feels like some big arguments happening between major oligopoly corporations, the commercial radio mm. companies versus commercial labels, and where do the musicians sit within that? You know, so they're yeah. kind of who is who is missing out here is the actual musicians and the the creators of of that content. Uh, I was really interested in the comments in your article that commercial radio argue that one of the reasons for the lack of Australian content is an insufficient supply of suitable content. Um, mm. It's interesting to compare the commercial radio situation with our commercial television where commercial television has a 55% Australian quota, but television produce their own content and they invest in making their own content. Commercial radio don't spend any money at all 
on creating any content. But also when I look at state and federal government rounds for contemporary music, there doesn't seem to be a lot of funding support either for projects by artists who are aiming to get airplay on a commercial Mm. sphere. Mm. It really does feel that the Music Works package, and I mean, they're fantastic packages, but it feels that they're going towards more grassroots independent artists than people trying to break through. So do you think this is a real claim? There is a lack of commercial friendly content and the that's part of the issue is it genuine look I don't believe that at all because I believe that there are acts out there that have that commercial sound but because they haven't broken through they're not going to take the opportunity so the reason that I started the the whole research in the first place was the band that I managed a band called Black Chords Uh, we had a Grammy award-winning producer come out from France and produce their album now that album is an amazing sounding album and it is commercially right up there but we had a radio plugger take it to radio and the first single that he took to radio was the sixth most added track to radio that week which was great that single didn't really you know didn't really take off but the second single was a a bit slower and and my radio plugger said to me um, Chrissy, if I went in and told them that this was the new Radiohead track from Radiohead, they'd play it. But they won't play it commercial radio. They won't play it because it's an unknown, like it's a Melbourne band that, you know, has, hasn't really done much. And that got me thinking of why the hell will they not play it? If it's good enough and you could actually go, I said, just take it in there and tell them it's Radiohead, you know, and because it did have that that kind of vibe about it. And I said, just tell them, just just have it on a blank CD and, and tell them that it's the new Radiohead. And he said, oh, yeah, I can't do that. And, and that got me thinking <laughs> that if, if I wanted him to, you know, I was like, just do it. Um, play it and see what they say and then go, well, it's a band from Melbourne, will you play it? Now, this particular song has been synced for Orange is a New Black, Suits, Shameless, and just this year it got that new, there's a new Hawaii Five-O television show in the US. So we've had four placements, four in the in US television shows for this one song that that he said, commercial radio won't play, but it's good enough to be played on, you know, all of these television shows in the US. Um, It has millions of players on Spotify because every time it's played on Oranges and New Black in particular because it's a really perfect scene-to-song placement, people shazam it, people download it and it goes crazy each time there's a new Oranges and New Black, you know, series come up. And so you know, that was what got me thinking, why are they not supporting just unknown Australian artists that are good enough, that had good enough commercial sounding music to go on commercial radio? So think about it, there are commercial sounding artists out there, but they don't want to take the risk of playing an unknown artist. And that's the thing that that it's easy to say we don't get serviced enough or there isn't enough quality out there. It's easy to say that because I think I think that there is. And it's about firstly people servicing commercial radio because they 
they just think there's no point, so why should we? So that needs to change and people need to actually go, you know what, let's do it. And they should actually accept it and take it on. But it's very, very, very rare that they're going to actually play something that is going to be from an unknown artist, you know. That, and that's what got me started on that whole thing was that the, the radio plugger who had these weekly meetings with commercial radio stations said they, they won't play it, Chrissy. Right. But you said that they would play it if you told them it was radio, <laughs> you'd play it. They'd play it. And they said, yeah, he said, yeah. You know, he said it's just as good or even better, but they're not going to play it because then it's Australian band. It's an unknown Australian band. Mm. I feel like maybe if you went to service it now and said it's been synced with these television programs, that's where that tall poppy syndrome comes back into it. And nobody wants to be, uh, it's like they're all very hesitant to be the first to play it. But if somebody else plays it, then we'll take it on. And so it's kind of this chicken egg back and forth of, is anyone else going to take it on? And I've had that feedback before working with print media and having Mm. great feedback from glossy magazines about my record and saying, we'd love to do something, Mm. but we just want to wait and see who else takes the story on first. So, you know, this kind of gamble, it's kind of gamble. A publicist recently said to me, that she thought you would have more chance of winning the lottery than getting a song added to commercial rotation in Australia. Do you agree yeah. with that? Yeah. <laughs> totally. An Australian song, for sure, for sure. It's just literally impossible. And it's the if you look at the ones that are getting played, it's the major label songs. Can you talk us through the process of how you would go about trying to get a song? How do they decide what they add? That's a really good question. Um, I I would love to tell you that, but uh, I have no idea. Well, when I worked at Triple M, it was was a completely different ball game because it was 1988, 89. So it was when Triple M, uh, Eon FM became Triple M. So that was how long ago I worked at Triple M. And we played... Because it was the late 80s, we played a hell of a lot of Australian music. Um, but these days, you would I would have a radio plugger take it in because they're really only going to listen to those radio pluggers or the promotions people that take them in from the record labels. And um, I don't know if you've ever have you ever been to Triple J, for instance, and service to Triple J because that's kind of horrific as well. <laughs> <laughs> where where you go in and you've got a couple of seconds to pitch what you've got and they don't even actually listen to it and then you've, you're out, which is what happened the last time I pitched to Richard Kingsmill. That was pretty daunting. But re- commercial radio, I think it's it's really, they say that they do research. Now, the way we used to do research when I worked at Triple M back in the late 80s was we had a room full of people on telephones ringing up people and playing songs down the phone. So that doesn't happen right now. I don't know what happens. I really would love to know what happens with how they decide on what they're playing. But what how I think it is is they're looking a lot more at streaming numbers. So they're looking at how many Spotify plays they've, they've had all of those kind of things, they're looking at what kind of what else is happening. So an artist has got to have a lot going on for them to really jump on board and play it. And like you said before, 
it's that chicken or the egg thing and they're waiting for something to happen. And like I said, they need to champion those acts and go, you know what, we're not going to wait and see. We really like this and we really believe this and we want to see this. We want to be the ones that actually champion it and push it through. But they don't. They're like sheep and they're only following what's going on in the US or in the UK. And if that's doing well, they're adding that. And so any Australian acts that kind of come in in the mix, well, it's the push from major labels, really. So Tones and I got amazing response. And everyone was saying she's on an independent label, but she's signed to Sony. It was Sony that was going in there and pushing. So it, and also mm. because that song just took off. It took off. So they they are really looking at streaming numbers and things like that, I think. YouTube views, all of those kind of, all that data, they're very much data-driven now and they're not really, um, they used to, where they used to survey and, and get, get people to listen and do you like this track. I don't know if they do that anymore. I'm, I really don't know. But a good question again, Chelsea. You've got me unprepared. <laughs> not, my, not my intention. Not my intention at all. It just feels so uh, really opaque in terms of for independent artists who, you know, are making up around that 20% of recorded content or whatever the percentage is, it just seems so impossible um, and also cost prohibitive because if you need to always be hiring a radio plugger to even try and pitch to commercial mm. radio, artists are going to very quickly go into a huge amount of debt. And I'm really mm. just interested in continuing to have you know, a conversation around how can we bring down this invisible wall and be able to connect artists with commercial radio because we do know that rotation on radio is what breeds the familiarity and the familiarity is what mm. artists need to create fan bases. And if you don't have fan bases, you can't have a sustainable income. And so without that That's commercial right. radio support, it's basically impossible to really progress, you know, kind of, up the food chain in the Australian um, mm. music landscape. Community radio do an incredible job at supporting local artists, but because of the lack of rotation, it's very hard for artists that do get support on community radio to really build that fan base. You know, you put out an album and community radio might play a couple of songs the week it's released and then not play it again, mm. you know, which is mm. just really not, not helpful. But speaking about Spotify and the streaming, so Spotify and digital radio don't have any content quotas at all. Is that right? I mean, how can we advocate for commercial radio to be doing better when the other radio spaces don't have any content quota at all? Well, that's their argument as well. CRA argues that why should we have quotas if the digital and um, streaming platforms don't? Mm. It, it's across the board, not just commercial radio, because we need to have that um, on digital radio and streaming platforms that have some sort of a quota that they need to be adhering to. Now, there's people that are really, really pushing for that to happen and it would be great, but then you've also got Commercial Radio Australia that don't want to have quotas. They don't, they really are pushing against the quotas. And I doubt that Apple and um, Spotify, et cetera, would be happy to have quotas either. It's something that needs to change in policy. How do we make that happen? There should be quotas across across the board for streaming services as well. And the parliamentary inquiry 
did did suggest that as well um, because I suggested that in my recommendations and they that was one of the recommendations that they came back with um, that they they think that it should be across streaming services as well but it's they did this parliamentary inquiry they have all of these recommendations and then nothing happens like and you know, you know, Chelsea, how we've just been trying, we're on this round table, you know, trying to trying to make things happen and then absolutely nothing happens. So it, it's kind of, it blows my mind that you have, why have a parliamentary inquiry if nothing's going to happen from that? Can you tell us about the FMAM campaign? So FMAM just came out of my frustration for the parliamentary inquiry it came out in November of 2018 so 2 years ago by March April of that of 2019 the findings came out and the findings were that there was uh you know that they had it was a 140 page report now in that report there were they they kind of did support my um, key recommendation for quotas, um, but nothing was really being done, and I just got a bit. By about October of um, last year, I got a bit antsy. Having run my own business for twenty years, I kind of just get like to get things done, and I'm not good at waiting for things to just happen. And uh, I tried to just get things moving and wanted to start a public awareness campaign to let the public know that this is what's going on and we should have, you know, it, this should be at 25% but it's not um, for commercial radio but we need to look at it across the board, across and, and in, you know, in that statement, in my statement on FMAM's change um, petition, it's across plat all platforms, streaming platforms, digital radio, et cetera. So it's just really, um, uh, it was just really a public awareness campaign to bring some awareness to the fact that we're not getting the support or the Australian music industry and the Australian musicians are not getting the support that they should be across the board. But um, COVID hit and it all kind of changed. Everyone's focus really was on how were the musicians going to make money and the, all the venues had closed, et cetera, and it really just stopped. Well, I'd like to say a big thank you to you on behalf of musicians, if I may, <laughs> and music industry for, you know, doing this work and the campaign and mm -hmm. getting that conversation going. It's it's really important. It does mean so much and have such a huge effect to you know, the industry overall. Um, I know that in other countries like Canada and Japan and other territories, the content quotas are so much higher. Um, can you tell us how you think that affects the music industry in, in those territories by comparison? Well, I did I did a um, comparative study of, of Canada and I'll also talk about New Zealand as well. So uh, Canada have 35% and it's between, so it's 35% Canadian content they also have a maple, they have this thing called the maple um, test, which is, uh, I think it's really cute uh, for, for Canada, you know, with the maple leaf. And it's musician, artist, uh, performer, lyricist. 
So um, they are the four, the maple, the, the letters that spell out maple, and there needs to they need to have um, at least one or two of each of needs to be the musician, um, the artist, the vocalist to make it a, an actual Canadian content, right? So, so for instance, I'm not sure if you're aware, but commercial radio here in Australia were claiming Justin Bieber as an Australian content because it was recorded in Melbourne. And that to me just was absolutely mind-blowing, mind-blowing. And the fact that Joan Warner, the head of CRA, Commercial Radio Australia, actually sent, and I have that email, sent an email to all the commercial radio stations around the country telling them how to determine what an Australian song is and explaining that Justin Bieber was not an Australian artist. I, I still have that email. It's it's gold. I did send that sneakily to the parliamentary inquiry panel so that they could see <laughs> before they spoke to Joan Warner. It was gold because when because they had read that when they spoke to Joan Warner. It was so great. Anyway, so Canada, it's 35%. They have the maple thing so they can actually determine what is a Canadian artist and uh, they also it's also between 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. And they also have, they have fines. So if a radio station is not making the quota, they are fined something to do with their licensing, et cetera, but they are, wow. they, they, there is ramifications. So the issue for us uh, and what the parliamentary inquiry found really interesting was that there's no ramifications for our radio stations. So when I was talking to the parliamentary inquiry and they said, so what happens if they don't meet quotas? And I said, well, absolutely nothing here, you know, nothing at all. So they they actually contacted me after I um, had my 45 minutes talking to the parliamentary inquiry. They actually contacted me. Um, and asked me to send more information on how Canada did it, you know, because they were really interested in the way that they were doing it. Now, you can see that in all of the, um, and I kind of look at the IFPI, the International Federation of Phonographic Organisations um, Global Music Report, and Canada are right up there and the Canadian music industry has just become stronger and stronger since that they've ensured that they're getting airplay for their artists. So it's proven that it, it really does help the, the Canadian artists and the Canadian music industry. Um, and because they're so close to America, they really did need to get that into, into play because otherwise it would just, mm. you know, meld into one. With New Zealand, though, and I thought of this when we were talking before, with New Zealand, they signed the free trade agreement that we signed in 2004, which deregulated their quotas so no more regulation it was completely deregulated and what they the approach that they took was that they had all of these different like you were saying uh with with regard to support for musicians to record they were doing that so they did that and they used to have these um NZ on air, they'd have these CDs that they would put together and send to commercial radio with commercial ready or commercial radio sounding ready music that they were helping to produce. So there was those kind of um, initiatives. There was a lot of funding, etc. So 
they were focusing on that recording and getting music recorded for commercial radio. But during my research, I spoke to a woman from New Zealand on air and she said that, and this was a couple of years ago now, she said that it just, it had wound down and just wasn't in play anymore. So nobody, nothing was being done. So they have um, no quotas whatsoever and they've got no regulations and they've got very little support. So we're in not in as bad a place as New Zealand, but they did try that whole, um, you know, the, the, the support and funding. Content creation yeah. support. Yeah. 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 But I guess that's easy to, it's easy to withdraw funding. You know, you only need some other major policy to come through and mm. money to the arts or music industry is withdrawn yeah. and then you're left with, yeah, de- a deregulated system mm. with no content quotas. So mm, fingers mm. crossed Jacinda can um, yes. work that out for us. I could talk to you about radio all day, <laughs> um, but I did want to ask you some other questions <laughs> about so many other aspects of your career. And I'm wondering if we can dial way back a bit and go back to the 80s. Mm. Um, so I believe you started working at Festival Records in Sydney mm. in the early 80s. Um, what was that time like in your life? That was crazy. Like I was just out of high school and um, and I actually wasn't I actually wasn't interested in, in working in the music industry. It was just I actually wanted to be a veterinary nurse. <laughs> And wow, really? I know. And I I just got this job in the accounts department at Festival Records and uh, it was in 1981, so there was lots of filing and I talked a lot and so they transferred me up to publicity <laughs> and PR into the promotions <laughs> department. And then all of a sudden I was like, wow, this is heaps of fun. <laughs> and um, it, was, it was just... Uh, look, I'm still f- friends with some of the people that I work with, that I met and worked with back at festival. Um, we talk every Sunday, one of my girlfriends and I, we've known each other for thir- 39 years, you know. Um, she still works in music as well. So at festival was awesome, and, but it was so, you know, I think about um, how we had old, um, you know, your switchboards where you pulled out, your, the the connections and put them into the holes and you had like when you were on the switchboard because you'd have to do everyone had to do um you know a rotation of lunchtime looking after the uh, reception desk um so kind of those things and there was the the record plant where they made the vinyl um downstairs so uh that was like just getting the opportunity to go and tour the the record plants and you'd go down and the warehouse was down there. So the warehouse was right next to the record plant. So they were making the records, they were keeping them in the warehouse and, you know, I'd have to go down and get uh, vinyl to send to particular radio stations, et cetera, and you'd go down with your list. And I used to know all of my um, catalogue numbers off by heart, you know. Um, it It was a lot of fun. There was... It was a, just a different time. It was just a really different time, you know. Everything took a lot longer. We had telex machines and um, which, you know, when I try and explain it, what a telex machine is to my students, they just go, what the hell, you know. So it was just a completely different time and it's bizarre for me that I started 
when we had telexes and stuff and now things have changed so much that in even in my career span I've seen just technology change so much and how things are done you know it was completely different and a very different Sydney I imagine too I mean the 80s was such a glorious heyday of that Aussie pub rock coming out of the kind of disco nightclub era into that real Aussie pub rock. It was kind of a a golden era. Um, And then from there you moved to LA and worked for Virgin Records in the 90s, which was also such an incredible time for music. What was it like working in LA? What were the kind of biggest learnings of your time at Virgin Records? Oh, look, that was so much fun. I had a really good time in LA. By the time I got to LA, I'd been in the industry for about 10 years. So I'd had, I'd worked at festival, I, I then worked at harbour agencies, and then I worked at Midnight Oil's office, and then I worked for Triple M in Melbourne, and then went to LA. So I'd had management, booking agency, radio station. So I'd had this variety. So when I got to LA, I really found it easy to get work. Now, I wasn't allowed to work because I didn't have a green card, so I got married. I paid a guy to marry me for my green card. And <laughs> <laughs> you, really? Yes. Wow, that's how fabulous. Um, I yeah, I paid him. He was a sound guy for Bad Religion, a band in LA and um, I paid him to marry me and we got lo- married in Las Vegas in on Valentine's Day. Um, so Valentine's Day has never been the same for me. I dressed as Marilyn Monroe. <laughs> I dressed as Marilyn Monroe. He was Elvis um, and we had an Elvis impersonator do the wedding. It was awesome. Um, <laughs> it was Vegas. Anyway, um, I w- found it really, once I got my green card, um, I found it really easy to get work because I had a variety of experience um, and I found that in the States they were very, uh, you know, you only did PR or you only did marketing or you only did sales or whatever. And I actually was temping at Virgin in the A&R department and they offered me a job in the A&R department and they also offered me a job in this, this department called Special Projects and they were just starting Special Projects up so it wasn't actually a department. Head of the Virgin Records Worldwide was a woman called Nancy Berry who was married to Ken Berry who was one of the owners of Virgin EMI. And he started he started Virgin with Richard Branson and um, so Nancy wanted her own little department and she wanted to start this thing called Special Projects. So they offered me a job as well. So I was temping in there and I got offered two jobs and I went, I remember meeting with the head of the the, the uh, HR department and she went through the the wage, etc. And I figured I'm going to just play hardball because this is a temp job and I can just walk out, you know. I said, I don't get up for that amount of, I don't get out of bed for that amount of money. And I got up out of the room and I walked out and down the corridor and she came running after me and she was like, come back, come back, come back. And I ended up getting another like twenty, twenty-five thousand dollars more than what they'd offered me just by throwing a little bit doing that, which was quite funny. And I've never done that American since. style. Yeah, yeah, totally. I was like, ah. And and I ended up taking 
um, the special projects job because one one of the major reasons it was a new department and it was working with the five top acts on the label. What our department was set up to do was so so say a label a manager of a of one of the artists would during the course of a, uh, an album's campaign talk to the art department, the PR department, the sales department. They'd they'd be farmed off to different departments. So the top acts, we looked after all of those things. So they just talked to us, uh, and we then talked to the art department and we talked to the sales department and the marketing department and the PR department and everything. So they only needed to deal with one person at the label. So that was right. that was how we worked. So at the time in 1994, 95, 96, we had David Bowie releasing his Outside album. We had the Rolling Stones doing Voodoo Lounge, uh, Lenny Kravitz's album Circus, uh, Smashing Pumpkins and the Sex Pistols. So the Sex Pistols did their, um, you know, Filthy Lucre re-release of an album and um, and tour. And so I had to work specifically on the Sex Pistols and Len- Lenny Kravitz. So all things regarding those two acts, I, I was a point of contact at the record com- company. So if something happened, it came to us. Um, if they wanted to know what the sales um, were for the particular al- any particular week, I'd have to get that information for them. If they, if I needed to organise a photo shoot for Lenny, I would go to the art department, organise it. That was kind of what I did for... Massive, massive job. Yeah, yeah. That's a lot massive, of fun though. Massive job. <laughs> um, I, I only did uh, Lenny, like I said, Lenny and um, looked after Lenny and the Sex Pistols, which... Um, was a lot of hard work, the Sex Pistols. Lenny was a pleasure to work with. I loved working with him. But I did get to meet David Bowie when he came into the office and, you know, we went, to, had a dinner with David Bowie um, and his wife, um, got to meet the Rolling Stones and that was, like, just mind-blowing for me because I sang in a Rolling Stones cover band in the 80s. Um, <laughs> so for me I was like, oh, my God. Um, but... You know, you had to keep it cool all the time. I had to, you know, go to Smashing Pumpkins filming when they were filming the video for Tonight Tonight because we had some winners, had to go and meet, do a meet and greet. And so there were times where I got to work with the other artists, um, but I was specifically looking after Lenny and the Sex Pistols. Did you have any starstruck kind of moments? I will tell you, well, I went to a... Charlie Watts was playing, Charlie Watts, the drummer with the Rolling Stones, was playing a jazz gig um, in a, in a theatre in Los Angeles. And one of the girls that I worked with had been actually on the road with the Stones for like four or five years and it was tired of being on the road and so we actually got her in at special projects and so she worked specifically with the Rolling Stones. So I actually was with her and her husband and after the gig she said, oh, I'm going to go back and see Charlie. And I said, oh, okay. And I said, oh, look, I'll just stay here. Um, and I was just kind of waiting around. And then I got either, you know, you're either kicked out of the venue or you go backstage. So I walk, went backstage and there was this big long line of people waiting to get back. And I'm, like, oh, I'm not standing in a line. And I went back to find Lil, my the friend that I'd gone with, and she was standing talking to Keith Richards, Bonnie Raitt, Charlie, 
Ron Wood and this American actor, which I can't remember the name, I can't remember his name. And um, she introduced me to, and this is Chrissy, she works at Virgin with us and, you know, and I just thought I'm going to remember this day for the rest of my life, but they meet so many different people that I'm nothing to them, you know. there's At the time at Voodoo Lounge there were 300 people on the road in the, in the touring mm. party, right? So wow. to me, it, like meeting them, that was like, oh, my God, but I that was an epiphany for me and I decided at that point that I wanted to come home because <laughs> I had... I was standing there with these people and I just thought, wow, you know, it, I'm going to remember this day and this whole time. I would rather be work with an artist that they remembered me and then they knew that I was instrumental or that I was a mm. part of their career. And I would rather do that than work with these artists where you're just one of 100,000 people <laughs> or, you know, how many people that they deal with on a daily basis that works at a record label or something. Do you know what I mean? So I remember going home that night and having a good cry and going, I think I want to get out of here. <laughs> and that was the point for me where I just decided that I wanted to I wanted to come home because it was that moment of meeting the Rolling Stones <laughs> and and um and it meant meant nothing, you know. What an incredible story, but I'm sure they do remember you. You're pretty memorable, Chrissy. <laughs> I don't know. I know I know Lenny does, um, which was really cool. I, I ended up going to a, a gig in Barcelona in 2004. So I left Virgin in 1998 and knew that there was stereophonics were um, playing with Lenny Kravitz and I knew those guys from my time at MTV. So I... Um, text message to them and they're like, yeah, we'll put you on the door. And so I thought, great. And I went backstage to see Lenny, really ballsy because, like, I hate doing that kind of stuff. And he, there was a meet and greet and there were all these people doing this meet and greet and I stood at the very end of the line, you know, and when he saw me he went, Chrissy from Virgin. <laughs> and he hugged me and I was like, he remembered, unreal. Can you tell us a little bit about, starting your own firm when you moved back to Australia, what was that like? Well, I'd, I'd, um, I came back to Australia and worked at MTV. In my dealings with at Virgin, I dealt with MTV International a lot because of the artists that I was working with. Uh, and the head of MTV International was a woman called Rebecca Baddies. And Rebecca was an Australian woman and she was working in New York. And I started talking to her about I wanted to come home and she said, we're starting up MTV in Australia, blah, blah, blah. So I was really lucky to then just walk into the job at MTV in Australia as publicist. And so I started doing publicity and it was a really great opportunity to start doing publicity after not being in Australia for so many years for MTV because everyone wanted to know what MTV, what was going on at MTV. It was so it was easy to, to kind of get up, the, pick up the phone and it's Chrissy from MTV and they'd go, oh, hi, Chrissy, what's going on, you know. So when it all kind of changed at MTV and Optus took over MTV, I decided to leave and start my own 
publicity company. I figured that by this stage, I'd been in the industry for about 15, 18 years. <laughs> so I thought, if I can't do this on my own, then there's something wrong. And so I was lucky enough that I'd worked uh, on Falls Festival. We went down and recorded, um, filmed interviews and recorded uh, live sets at Falls Festival in 1998 as part of MTV. So I met up with uh, the two guys that were running Falls. And so when I left MTV, they just said to me, do you want to do PR for Falls? hell yeah great and at the time falls was still really growing so you know it, it wasn't like it is now at falls festival in 1998 was a little band called the living end and they were playing at like four o'clock in the afternoon their manager said to me do you want to do publicity for the living end and i said hell yeah so i had two really good clients straight off the bat um and I was really, really lucky again, and it was because of where I'd, I'd come from MTV and they knew me from MTV. I just thought that I'd have to take that leap of faith uh, and do it because if I, I figured if I couldn't do it, I, after all those years of being in the industry, I should be able to do my own thing. So, And I did that for another 18 years. <laughs> and you're still doing it, right? But you've also transitioned into the education sector. What's that been like for you? Because you've been within the industry for decades. Education is such a different offering. Oh, it is so different. I'm not doing publicity anymore. I, I've just, it's, there's just too much work. I'm head of the entertainment management degree at CollArts. And so there's a lot of work with the teaching and also just the admin, et cetera. But I got to a point in my career where I, I thought, what else can I do? I want to move on from doing publicity. What else can I do? I did my master's in order to be able to teach, got the position at CollArts, I've been there five years. It is very different. It's it was hard for me at first because I'd run my own business and had and was able to do pick and choose the campaigns that I worked on. And um, you know, if I didn't didn't like a client, then you know, when the, when that campaign finished, I just wouldn't work with them again. You know, it's it's a completely different ball game when you're actually working in a business and you have to you know, stick to the rules kind of thing. <laughs> so that took me a couple of years to, to kind of get into the groove. But also I wanted that regularity of a paycheck because even after all of those years of running my own business, still as a as a independent contractor um, and, and freelance publicist, you know, when I when I look at what's happened in with COVID, I think, wow, if I was a publicist, I'd be really struggling for work, especially publicity on tours, which was a lot of my work. You know, so I was I was very, very aware of other friends that were publicists that were really, really struggling at the very beginning. And that, you know, I, and I just did not miss a beat with regard to teaching. We, we've been going nonstop since lockdown. We haven't stopped at all. So, that was for me a real kind of awareness of uh, I'm glad I'm I've taken that path just for the stability. I still like to keep my hand in on on all what's going on in the music industry. Of course, I'm listening to music, music, and I get introduced to a lot of new music from the students. I like to educate them on 
how it was, how it was before because, you know, so a lot of them think that it's only, that, that they only listen to what's happened in the last five or ten years but it's like, you know, there's so much more to the industry. So I like to educate them on that. You know, I teach uh, cultural policy, so and I, that's a, like a real passion for me. So I like to kind of get them passionate about knowing what's going on in politics, things like that. And I also teach them publicity, which is something that I've known for a long time, but also it's changed so much that I really need to keep keep on top of how it's changing and how I, you know, how things are completely turned around since I started. It's a challenge. I feel over this last six to eight months, I felt like I've had the weight of 130 students on my shoulders uh, because they were all struggling with lockdown and everything that was going on and there was so many students that were having anxiety and depression and, and I honestly felt like there was a lot of um, hand-holding. I'd set time every week to do one-on-one catch-ups with them all to make sure that they were <laughs> all okay because you can't see them in the, in the corridor, you can't see them in the classroom. Mm. So you, you really, really worked at making sure that they were all okay and to make sure that they were aware that, okay, this is just a little hiccup in, in the industry and don't be too freaked out because it just, you know, it may, it'll may it come back, it may be a little different, but it's it'll pivot, that, that word that everybody's using at the moment is it'll pivot and change and there may be, there'll be, you know, jobs that we don't even know about in the next couple of years. So don't, they, they were really freaking out of what am I doing, why am I doing this course, that type of thing. There was a lot of anxiety, um, but they've all mm. come through. They seem to be coming through the other side. Well, it's just such important work that you're doing in shaping that next generation mm. of people working in our industry. It's really important. What advice do you have for younger people that want to break into the music industry who might be thinking, you know, it's doomsday given the COVID situation? Oh, well, like I said, we, you know, I think that there is, it, it's going to come back. It's, it will, it may be different. There will be lots of different things to deal with, but I think that everyone needs to have resilience, passion and determination, you know. Those things are really important. It's not going to happen. It's not going to just come and drop in your lap. You need to really want it. Now, the thing that I always say to them is how much do you want this? Because you really got to want it, you know, and I think about the fact that I sold everything that I owned in Australia and moved to L.A. with two suitcases and I made it work. And I wanted to stay there and I made it work. I was 27. <laughs> oh, I, think because I was old enough to just go, right, I'm out of here. I wanted it to happen and I, and I made it work. There was determination, passion and resilience. Um, anyone can do that. Anyone can have that. They just, you know, you need to want it. How much do you want this? So, and I say that to the students. It's the students that really that I see putting their hands up and wanting to, you know, volunteer at somewhere or they're there um, on the Zoom call first up or they're not late with their assessments or they don't need an extension and all those things that are just, they're just getting to it and doing it. That's what you need in this industry. The industry will not cater to, uh, you know, 
people that just expect it to be handed to them. What do you think, Chelsea? Do you agree with me? (laughs) (laughs) I I love that. Resilience, passion, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Chrissy, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me on the podcast. It's so appreciated. So that was the conclusion of my formal set of questions for Chrissy. After that last response, I hit stop on the recording and we were just having a little bit of a general catch up. And then Chrissy launched into this incredible story, sharing one of her career highlights with me. And I said, stop, can you actually start that again? Um, I'm going to hit record. We've got to get that on the podcast. So here's a little outtake, but I had to include it. This is one of Chrissy's career highlights. The highlight of my career, I would say, is in the year 2000, I had the pleasure of doing publicity for legendary punk rock icon Susie Sue from Susie and the Banshees. Now, Susie and her husband, um, Bungie, who uh, was also in the Banshees, um, had a a band called The Creatures and they came out. It was around um, the... Olympics and they came out and did three shows Sydney uh, Melbourne Sydney and Brisbane I met her at the airport and we I took her out for dinner to Distasio on St Kilda on um, Fitzroy Street St Kilda her and Budgie and uh, we got on so well and I and we started talking it's like how do you how do you have a conversation with these people you know and I ended up telling her that I'd worked with John Lydon and the Sex Pistols and, and I told her about spitting in John Lydon's sushi and she leaned over the over the table and hugged me and just said, I love you. And that was it. And we ended up at Mink Bar and we ended up drinking lots of vodka and, oh, it just got crazy. And we just got on like we had been, we'd known each other for years and she wanted me to fly to Sydney with her. I want you to come and hang out with me in Sydney. And I said, okay, no problem, I'll come up. After the gig in Sydney, I said to her, oh, I forgot to ask you to do my favourite song, Christine the Strawberry Girl. And she said, oh, Chrissy, why didn't you ask? I said, oh, don't worry about it, I forgot. And and she, she oh, you know, blah, blah, blah. I said, don't worry, don't worry. And we ended up going out afterwards. And the next day I flew back to Melbourne and she went to Brisbane. She had a show in Brisbane. I was pretty exhausted and I, I went to bed pretty early and was woken up by my mobile phone. Now, in the 2000s, they were Nokias and they didn't, they flipped or <laughs> they didn't have record. And my phone rang and, and I hear, Chrissy, it's Susie. And she said, um, don't hang up. I'm promised I'm going to play you this song. So I'm, I'm playing this song for you. And then I hear her go starting to Christine Strawberry Girl and she starts singing Christine Strawberry Girl, which is the, my favourite song of Susie and the Banshees because it's my name. And, <laughs> and then she said, um, then I could hear her going, don't hang up. And then, then <laughs> I'm sitting there and I started crying because I'm in bed, I'm on my own and here's Susie Sue singing a song to me down the phone and she's live on stage in Brisbane and I'm like oh my god and then somebody carries the mobile into the dressing room so the encore and then she's going let's do Hong Kong Gardens and we'll do the and 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 so she's doing all these like going through what song they're going to do as they come on for the encore and I'm still on so I'm on the phone for about 15 minutes 
Now, back in 2000, those 15-minute phone calls cost a lot of money. Um, <laughs> so the tour promoter was paying for that, obviously. And um, I got to hear all these different songs, these songs that she hadn't done in Sydney and Melbourne. And, and then she just she hung up by saying, I promised um, I'd play you that song. I love you. Thanks very much for everything. And, and that was it. And I was like sitting in bed on my own, just like mind blown. And the next morning, um, the music editor from the Korea Mail rang me, a guy called Noel Mengel, and I'd put his name on the door and he rang me to say, thank you so much, Chrissy. That was such a great gig. And I said, oh, no worries, Noel, not a, not a problem. And he said, I said, you got some songs we didn't get um, in Sydney and Melbourne. And he said, was that you on the phone? And, he, and I said, yeah. And he goes, oh, she stopped the crowd, she stopped the gig and demanded the mobile phone from the tour manager and, you know, called you on stage in front of the whole packed Brisbane gig and call, and sang me the song. So I, I, I had at least one person knew that, it, that she'd sung that but wasn't able to record it. There was no one there with me to share it with me. So, But that was like the, the best thing of my career that actually somebody did that for me. Aww. That's so cute. I love that story. Well, I hope you get many more song dedications. That was my chat with Chrissy Vincent. You've been listening to Control, a podcast with Chelsea Wilson. For more episodes, please subscribe and make sure you follow Control Podcast on Instagram and check out controlpodcast.com for more info and full transcriptions of every episode. This episode was recorded on the lands of the Kulin Nations with respects paid to elders past, present and emerging. It was produced and edited by Chelsea Wilson. I'll catch you next time.